Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. I'm joined by Greg Barnes and Jason Staples. You're listening to the Inside Carolina podcast, sponsored by JohnnyTShirt.com. Doing this format a little bit differently due to a couple things, hurricane and hurricanes. And earlier in the week, or yesterday, actually, I had a chance to talk to Mike Ingersoll and get his thoughts about Carolina's win last Saturday against South Carolina and also look ahead to Miami. John Siegley, course, incognito, out of country. So Mike's and EJ Wilson's normally scheduled show did not happen, but I talked to Mike because I wanted to get his thoughts. So before I get into it with Greg and Jason, let's hear from Mike Ingersoll. Mike, um, I'm going to cut straight to it, get right into it. Um, You're talking to me tonight because John is away doing much better things. And uh, so I hope you're okay with me hosting this little segment with you. Well, I'm perfectly fine with that. You've already flattered me by characterizing me as special. So uh, anytime somebody thinks that highly of me, it's going to be a good night. Uh, there are uh, different versions of special, but you're definitely the good version of special. I'm one, I'm one, I'm one of those versions. We'll figure out which one by the end of this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let me look back just briefly. Um, and, and I know Mac Brown and the Carolina staff and we at Inside Carolina are trying to turn forward, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about last weekend in Charlotte. I mean, just an unbelievable win for the North Carolina football program, which I know um, if there's anybody more happy to see it than Mike Ingersoll, I'd be surprised. <laughs> well, I th- yeah, I, th- I think you've characterized that pretty well too. So that's that's two for two tonight, Tommy. Thank you. No, the, I, I was I was uh, to say pleasantly surprised would be a, an understatement. It was a, a a power five win against an SEC school. That's you know it's a border rivalry. It's a team that I didn't beat. Um, that I had I had a chance to beat when I was in college that, that we failed to pull that off at home in Keenan. So it was nice to see a little redemption there. Um, and obviously there's bragging rights as South Carolina, North Carolina matchup has become not commonplace, but more frequent, you know, over the past 10 years or so. So uh, certainly much more frequent than frequent than it was beforehand, um, before that 10 year stretch. So it's nice to see us get a win, get some bragging rights. And, uh, you know, it was it, being, living in Charlotte and having a lot of coworkers that went to South Carolina undergrad and South Carolina law school, it sure is nice to to rub that in their face a little bit. The way I characterize it with one of my coworkers uh, Tuesday morning when I saw him was, it looks like both of our programs defied expectations this weekend. <laughs> he didn't like that very much. No, 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 no. They are they are not happy down there in uh, little Carolina land. It was. Uh, I listened to the Must Champ press conference the weekly press conference I mean, oh yeah he he went off a little bit he wasn't happy yeah so they uh but speaking of that I mean you talked about how you guys played them didn't get it done it's funny to me that I believe Mac Brown's first game as North Carolina's coach first go around was against South Carolina which they lost but you know we've talked about rivalry games and everybody thinks of Duke and State and, and Wake Forest to a certain extent, but I, I think the South Carolina and North Carolina matchup could be one. I think it was pretty awesome to be in Charlotte. I know a lot of people like to have it in uh home and home series, but I think it could be a thing. And I know it's going to happen again in 2023, but just on the scale of opening wins for Mac Brown, I mean, 
I'm not sure he could have had a better opening week as a as a coach coming back um, and building the expectations as he did off season. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. So this is this is what I'll say is the first step in validating the hire of Mac Brown. And I talked about this with John and EJ last week. Um, but there are a couple of games on this schedule that if he wins them, bowl game or no bowl game, if he wins the South Carolina game, which he managed to do, if he beats Virginia Tech, which I think they they probably will. I mean, you assume they're going to get better from what we saw on you know this past Saturday, and and this past Saturday wasn't a bad product. Um, you know, qualify it with South Carolina had an uphill battle from the start, just like Miami will this week because there's no film on our personnel running these offensive and defensive schemes. So it's very difficult, as I've said time and time again, to court or to uh, to game plan against coordinators, which is what at least the first four or five games of this season our opponents are going to be doing. But if you beat South Carolina, which we did, check that box. You beat Virginia Tech, check that box. You beat Duke, you beat NC State, um, and throw, you know, for you know, for for some giggles there, throw in a Virginia win. I'd say the Mac Brown hire is completely and totally validated this year, and we don't even make a bowl game if those are the only games, the only games that we win. But if you bookend the season with wins against rival South Carolina, and I agree with you, that is a rivalry game. With a win at NC State last game of the year, which is the rivalry, it's the preeminent football rivalry for us, though Duke has started coming back into the fold as of late. I think bookending the season with wins there and you sprinkle a couple, two, three, four more there in the middle, I think the the hire is completely validated. And I'll throw one more in there. I wish we'd play Tennessee more often. Um, I, I think that I think that could be a border rivalry that we don't really participate in that that used to be much more common. The NC or the uh, North Carolina Tennessee game uh in many years past eons ago was a normal almost year by year game and I think that should be more of a rivalry. I wish I'd I wish I could see that on the schedule more often. Yeah, it wouldn't uh it wouldn't hurt my feelings if they maybe alternated between South Carolina and Tennessee. You don't need them both in the same year, but open the season. Uh each season, every other season with every other team, it would be a make for a fun non-conference slate. And it's certainly better in my mind than playing a team like Mercer. And then we'll talk later in the season about App State. I just think that's really a no-win game for North Carolina either way. Um, I agree but, with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's one of those ones, beat them and you should, lose to them, and oh, hell, you got to listen to App State folks forever. But um, anyway. Let's turn to this Saturday, and Carolina has an opportunity at 8 o'clock in Keenan Stadium um, to really get the season kick-started. South Carolina win was great. Miami win would just do wonders and change everybody's expectations because I'm still torn on what mine are at this point. But, you and me both. Yeah, so, you know, if they beat Miami, then I'm I'm on the bandwagon totally, but Let's talk about the environment. Let's talk about 8 o'clock in Keenan Stadium first. Never mind it's the Hurricanes coming in. But just speak to that Keenan Stadium night game. I mean, it doesn't get much better. No, it doesn't. I mean, a night game is fun, but you forgot one very important thing, and that's this night game is completely and totally sold out. It's you go on to GoHeels.com and you try to get some tickets, and you look at the little stadium graphic they have there for the available seats, and there are none. Um, now does that mean there's going to be a button every seat? Probably not, but it does mean that they sold every ticket. I mean, how awesome is that? 
Um, and it, you know, it used to be, I, I got a little spoiled. We had, you know, when I played, we had a lot of sellouts and when coach Fedora first took over, we had a lot of sellouts. Um, it was, it was normal for a home game to be sold out for us. And, you know, keep in mind also that was a slightly bigger stadium with more seats. Um, and again, it wasn't every single butt or every single seat had a butt in it, but you know, that place was rocking. Um, I remember Virginia tech in 06, uh, that Brandon flowers, Virginia tech team came in. And we that game was sold out, and that was the first time I'd experienced a sold out Keenan Stadium. And I remember Vince Jacobs. I've told the story before, but I remember Vince Jacobs, who was my roommate at the time, looks at me on the sideline. We both dressed out for that game as freshmen. Vince actually played in that game, though he ended up retaining his red shirt um, um, that year. Vince looks at me as soon as he ran on the sideline and says, "This is why I came to this school," and I'll never forget that comment because he was absolutely right. That was why I went to an ACC school. That's why I went to Carolina. That's why I wanted to play big time college football. When I realized I had that opportunity, it was for environments like that. And that was a noon kickoff nighttime in Keenan stadium sold out game. I've played in those two. The place is absolutely rocking. And part of the reason why it's rocking is you got all day to tailgate and get a little rowdy, right? So the fans are out having a good time all day long, but you know, the sun's down, it's not hot. Nobody's complaining about the heat. They're not complaining about the sun. They just focus on the game. And when you have a stadium full of 55, 60,000 people that are focused entirely on the game and the product on the field, it really does make for a much better environment. It puts you in that little fishbowl. And, 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 you know, there's a, there, there is a, an aura in Keenan stadium. There is a feeling, a, a, a vibration that happens when that place is, is full and it's rocking. Like I know it will be Saturday night. Um, and for the players on the field, it really is a very special feeling. I, I'm not doing any justice right now trying to describe it in words, but just trust me, it's, uh, it's absolutely electric. And I'm really excited to, to, to see that in person this weekend. I'll be up there. Yeah, we talked about it in preseason. If they beat South Carolina, Miami, he's going to be off the chain. It is going to be crazy in Keenan Stadium, 8 o'clock on the ACC Network, I believe. But any Carolina fan in their right mind will be in that stadium Mike, let's look at the Hurricanes themselves. Um, you've been quite fond of Miami Hurricanes program over the years, have you not? <laughs> uh, yeah, look, look, I, I recognize talent when it's there, and I also recognize talent that doesn't necessarily produce when it's there, and Miami seems to have a dose of both. The, when they're good, they're really, really good, and they were good at times. But uh, a lot of people use the term, and, and quite honestly, I don't remember hearing it too terribly much until you started talking about the front-runner aspect of the hurricanes explain what you mean explain why you mean that and explain uh your thoughts as to what carolina has to do to handle that because uh, you're absolutely right miami um, is one of those type teams that would have to be classified as a front runner well i guess i'll start it with a little backstory and, and this is another one i've told before but for those who don't remember the very first college football game that i ever watched in my life was the BCS National Championship between Miami and Ohio State. Back when Ken Dorsey was the quarterback, Kellen Winslow um, was a tight end, Willis McGahee was a running back, um, and, they played, uh, and they played Ohio State in the National Championship and frankly got robbed. Um, that was back when Miami was in the Big East and got robbed there on a uh, last-second pass breakup they called pass interference on, and Miami, Miami ended up losing that game, and they shouldn't have. That was the first college football game I'd ever watched from start to finish. And I remember them this whole time talking about this Butch Davis guy, Butch Davis, Butch Davis this is Larry Coker's team in terms of who's coaching it, but it's really Butch Davis's roster. And it's Butch Davis's team and Butch Davis, Butch Davis, Butch Davis. 
And, um, and I never really, I, I kept hearing that name over and over again. And I didn't realize that it had been at that point dropped into my subconscious. I moved on from that game, didn't think about it again. And then I remember, uh, 2004, yeah, 2004, I was sitting at home and I was flipping through the TV guide and I saw the Miami versus UNC. And I thought, well, it's not basketball season. What is this? And I turned on the game and it was the 2004 Miami versus North Carolina football game that Connor Barth ended up kicking the game winning field goal in. I was pulling for Miami and I didn't even know Carolina had a football team back then, let alone that 12 months later, I'd be signing my letter of intent to go to school there. Um, But, you know, never mind all that. I was a Miami fan coming into college. Um, You know, it was kind of ingrained in me from the very first time I watched a college football game. Um, and obviously it came full circle. I got to play with Butch, and that's what brings me to this point. The front runner moniker was something that Butch actually pushed to us. And he said time and time again, when I coached there in the 80s, when I coached there as the head coach, since I've been retired from college football and come back here and been watching Miami, that program is nothing but a group of front runners. When they're good, when they're winning, and when they're ahead, they are unbeatable no matter how good or bad the record might be, that is an unbeatable team because of the talent they have on the roster. But as soon as you get them down and you start to put your foot on their neck a little bit, they're done. And I didn't necessarily understand what he meant by that until the first time we beat Miami. And I said, oh, okay. Well, I kind of see what he means. And then we went down in 08, down to Miami, and we beat them at Miami. Um, Cam Sexton, the last second second touchdown, and then a Tremaine Goddard, uh, interception there in the back of the end zone, huge win, beat Miami there. And then in 09, we beat them again. And then obviously in 2010, we lost, but beating them three times in a row kind of validated, like I'm talking about validating the Mac Brown hire. It validated what Butch was saying about them being front runners. And all those games, we, we had them down. We were down at some point, And then we ultimately were, we, we, we came back and had them down. And as soon as we started mounting a comeback and put them on the ropes, uh, it seemed like those games sort of just ended up falling into our lap a little bit. Uh, 08, it took till, you know, the last couple possessions, but ultimately that's how that game felt at the tail end. Um, but, you know, 2010 is a perfect example of the type of talent they have. We had them down 10 to nothing in that game. It was a primetime game. We were beating them at home. And we let the foot off the gas a little bit. They mounted a little bit of a comeback, got some confidence, and they ended up blowing the doors off of us. Um, and that's that's the type of program they are. Now, which version of Miami will we get this weekend? I have no idea. Uh, I will be interested to see, but I can tell you this, that if at halftime that Miami team is losing by 10 points or more, I'd venture a guess to say that's probably going to be done. You can, you can pretty much book it. That's going to be a Carolina win. will be interesting to watch. I know you'll be there. I know you'll be there with a, a large number of your, your player buddies it, Chapel Hill is going to be wide open, Mike. I appreciate you taking time to join me here. Folks listening, Mike Ingersoll will be back with E.J. Wilson, John Siegley next week in their regularly scheduled podcast. But, Mike, thanks for tonight. Thanks, Tommy. Appreciate you having me on. That was Ingersoll, of course, speaking on his favorite team, the Miami Hurricanes. As we all know, he he loves those guys. I think he explains that fully in that little segment. going to talk about johnnytshirt.com right fast. JohnnyT-shirt.com, Johnny T-shirt on Franklin Street, certainly your best place to get Carolina gear for this football game Saturday night, for any football game, any basketball game, or any Carolina need you have. JohnnyT-shirt.com and Johnny T-shirt on Franklin Street. When you're in town for the Carolina-Miami game on Saturday, stop by them, see them. 
patronize their store. They're great sponsors of this podcast. Great Carolina people give you everything you could ever possibly need. Now, we've got Greg Barnes and Jason Staples here with me finally. Guys, this is our normally uh, scheduled preview podcast. Jason, let me get you in here first. Looking ahead to Miami, how much did last weekend significantly change what we're about to talk here, talk about here as Carolina hosts the Hurricanes at 8 o'clock on Saturday night? Well, it changed, it changed things a lot. I mean, offensively, North Carolina is who I thought they'd be, basically. I mean, cue the Denny Green clip there, but – basically defensively i thought they i thought they were better than i expected and and i i mean listen i've been very uh very clear in my admiration for jay bateman as i've gotten a chance to watch some film over the summer and i got a chance to go to the coaching clinic and all that you know i, I think that i think the guy is one of the better coordinators in the game and thought he'd really do well at carolina but <laughs> what they looked like in game 1 was better than i expected and especially, it was a combination of watching Miami against Florida in week one, and then watching North Carolina, or week zero, I guess, and then watching North Carolina in week one, that I start, I, I'm looking at some of those matchups and going, you know, yeah, Miami may have a little more talent overall on their team, especially once you account for the defensive side and some of the places they've got it, but football's a game of matchups and styles make fights and looking at those two matchups, I'm starting to think maybe Carolina has the right kind, just the right kind of mix and right kind of personnel and everything to, to be the wrong kind of team that Miami's playing right now. So yeah, I, I've, I've gone from, from thinking that, well, you know, this is kind of a coin flip that, that Carolina might have a chance to win, or maybe a little worse than a coin flip that Carolina might have a chance to win to really thinking that, Matchup wise, they're they're going to have a chance to give give uh, Miami a lot of problems up front on both sides of the ball, and with how the quarterbacks looked, I'm I'm not sure that there's a big advantage one way or the other. So, yeah, I think that this uh, this matchup has changed pretty significantly after watching Week Zero and Week One. Yeah, Tommy, I think one of the key differences here is that the storyline surrounding North Carolina entering that season opener was. This team has proven that they've been hit by the injury bug in years past. And more than anything, they've proven they can't win close games. They cannot finish. But what happened? You know, one of the reasons I said this week that game was shocking to me was not that Carolina won, but that they won by outscoring South Carolina 15 to zip in the fourth quarter after trailing by 11 points. Starts to change that narrative, and I think the fact that that was Mac Brown's first game, uh, you know, more so than if it was Larry Fedora on the sideline and Carolina win that game in that fashion, with it being Mac, and say, well, new regime, maybe all that in the past really is gone, and so people start to believe that. Yet, what you hear this week from Manny Diaz is, we no longer want to be known as a Miami football program that has a lot of talented players, but we can't just put it together. Well, what we saw in week zero against Florida was a team with a lot of talent that was unable to get it done. So Mac has shown that there's some shift in how North Carolina is going to play. You're kind of deviating from that, that narrative that's been in place. 
Miami hasn't shown that yet. And so while I still think Miami has the talent advantage, uh, I I think it really is on Manny to be able to show that, hey, you know, I am the coach for this program. We are going to be different. We can win these games as favorites. Um, North Carolina is playing with house money. Nobody before the season thought they could win this game. Uh, now we, we know they, they certainly can win this game, even though they're an underdog. Uh, and so I think you, this is a game that they have a good opportunity to win. The pressure's on Miami. So Carolina should come out uh, feeling pretty good about themselves. Greg, you sort of went where I was going with my follow-up there is the, the pressure factor. And I guess the playing with house money is the ideal uh, way to look at this game, look at this season, really, I think, for Mac Brown. Because, I, you know, other than just completely tanking, I think anything positive for Mac this year was building for next and beyond. But given the South Carolina win, it does change a lot of expectations. Greg, you talked about – you know, the athletes that Miami has, what I saw on Saturday or, or a couple Saturdays ago or whenever week zero was, uh, they struggled to get the ball into the hands of those guys at times. And then Carolina, you know, we've seen the Carolina teams with a lot of talented athletes last couple of years or uh, case in point, they couldn't get the ball to them when they needed to. I think that's the difference on Saturday. So, a roundabout way of asking the question, Greg, we talk about the jump from game one to game two. How much better can Carolina be than they showed against South Carolina against a Miami team that obviously has it there but has yet to put it together? Well, I, I suspect both of these teams will look significantly better this week than they did in their first game. And I think you can probably say that for every team across the country. At least you should be able to say that if the, the coach is halfway decent. Um. You know, I think if you look at what North Carolina did in the first half, they were ultra conservative with Sam Howell. I mean, we've talked about that a lot. Even in the red zone, you know, they were conservative between the 20s, and then when they got in the red zone, they were even more conservative. And Longo said the reason they did that is, you know, more than anything, they wanted to get points. It didn't have to be touchdowns. They did not want to have a turnover uh, that, number one, hurt Howell's confidence but also you didn't put South Carolina in a position where they gained a lot of momentum. And so while that did drive a lot of people crazy, and as you're watching, you're saying, wow, they're, they're not even giving this kid a chance to make plays. It ultimately paid off because once they started loosening things up in, in the second half, Hal was able to make some, you know, he hit on the slants early, gave some confidence. And then when he started making some passes down the field and having success, uh, this offense was you know, ready to go. And I don't think South Carolina responded very well. So the question is, can North Carolina continue to build on that second half? And is Miami, you know, do they see enough from what North Carolina wanted to do in the second half to be better prepared for what Longa's offense looks like, what Howe can do, what his running backs can do? Uh, so there's a lot of dynamics that kind of come into this game. But the fact that Howe, when you compare him to what Bentley did for South Carolina, you know, Bentley missed on a lot of throws. And if you're a fifth-year quarterback who's played in, I think, what, 32 games entering that game, and you're missing on some of those throws, uh, your limitations are pretty obvious. But with Howe, for the most part, all of his throws were were catchable balls. Um, you know, I know he forced one or two. But you can, you can play with that. And kind of to your point, Tommy, when you've got good athletes, whether it be at tight end or wide receiver or running back, 
and you can at least get the ball somewhat close to them where they have the opportunity to make a play on every single play, uh, now you can be productive. Now you can utilize their talents a little bit more. And so how Miami responds to that and how much Phil Longo decides to open this thing up, I think will tell us a lot about how successful that offense can be on, on Saturday. Great point about Bentley just completely struggling and about how, yeah, I just wonder how much of it was a not really a, a beginner's luck type thing because obviously that doesn't really, it's not really how it worked, but how it just seemed to be in the, in a, out in the ether and zoned in, especially late there in the game. And so, Jason, I asked you the follow-up question. You know, Howell just looked great. Like I said, Bentley was not great. How much of that was Bentley having a bad night versus Carolina and Jay Bateman and guys like Aaron Crawford doing a number on that offensive line? Uh, and how does that really translate this week against the Miami offensive line that struggled mightily because one thing Manny Diaz did in his press conference this week is he bristled when uh, folks brought up the troubles for their offensive line they have that same type issue on Saturday night blocking Carolinas and I I don't see how the results any different from the Carolina South Carolina game I think the majority of what we saw from Bentley having trouble making plays uh, was due to some unfamiliarity with what he was seeing, uh, which is telling for a guy who's in his fourth year, uh, <laughs> guy who started for three years, who's going to own every South Carolina passing record most likely. And there were times where you could see he was he he was a little confused by what he saw. And most of all, you referenced it, they were able to get pressure on him pretty consistently. I mean, you look at the knockdown stats and the and the sack stats and he was either knocked down or sacked on 21% of his dropbacks. So one out of every 5 times he dropped back to pass, he either got hit or he got sacked. So that was a big part of it. And like you said, North Carolina North Carolina uh on the other side, Howell didn't have that problem and I think one of the reasons that Howell was able to be more effective, especially down the stretch, isn't because Howell played better necessarily than, than than Bentley. I think it's because Howell was surrounded by an offensive line that kept him pretty clean. You know, there were a few there were a few things that that a few times where he got pressure and he responded well, but also the plays that were made were the kinds of plays where they gave Sam the chance to drop back not really have to hold the ball very long, not have to make a make a big read, but we're looking at that guy, and then if he's not there, you're going to this check down, and if there is a chance and it's a one-on-one, just lay it up and let your guy go and win the matchup. And North Carolina's wide receivers, a lot of people have talked about Sam Howell stepping up in the clutch. The thing to me was, look at what Deami Brown did. Look at what Daz Newsom did. Look at what... uh Antoine Green did those guys when their when their name was called upon to make a quote unquote 50 50 uh, play those guys made those plays and Sam looked great as a result now that's not to say that he didn't do he didn't put the ball where it needed to be there were some really really good throws I'm thinking particularly the the one to Newsom on the on the uh, slot fade that was a great throw but at the same point, those are low-risk throws that, that were set up because he was able to get a running game. He was protected. 
and his wide receivers kept making plays when it when when they had that that chance. And by the way, you mentioned earlier playing with house money. I have to mention that North Carolina won me some money last week. I very rarely bet on 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 sports, but uh, a, a friend of mine in the media who runs a gambling uh, a gambling column for another outlet had commented on Twitter a couple of weeks ago saying, wow, looking at the odds and looking at this early schedule, you know, you think it's, I mean, what are the odds that North Carolina even wins a game and before October? It's like, you know, the odds say they should get it, but looking at the schedule, I'm not sure they're going to do it. And he was like, you know, the odds have got to be about, I think it was like plus 425 or so to, um, uh, to do that. And I was like, I'd take that bet. And so we, we set it up. You know, if Carolina wins a game between game one and October, then I get 25 bucks. And if they don't, then he gets, I think it was like 115, you know, to set the odds even. I made 25 bucks in the first night. So I feel pretty good about myself. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds like your friend's going to be out of business. <laughs> uh, he, he had a pretty successful year last year. So, you know, he's not doing bad. But that's one where I'd seen him in, in practice and he's going off of, what have we seen from and the, the the reason that's worth bringing this up aside from just, you know, the fun of it is he's going off of a North Carolina team that won five games the last two years. And then you look at that opening slate and you say, South Carolina, Miami app, wake forest and wake forest is better than people think. And you start going, wait a second, is there a win here? But I think what we, what, what we saw in the open practice, what I saw in the open practice and what I saw in the spring was and what I saw first in the spring and then was much more confirmed in the open practice is that's not the same North Carolina team that won five games in the last two years. And so, again, what what's what Miami's going to be playing, what they're going to be facing is not the same team that won two games the last last couple of years. And we saw that again with all of those guys around Sam Howell making the plays that enabled him then to step forward and with some confidence say, okay, I can put this out there and I know you're going to come up with it. And I think that's a big difference. And Miami, like you said, they didn't do that. And when it comes to to Jaron Williams facing what Jay Bateman threw at Bentley, at Jake Bentley, Williams has seen a lot less. He's faced a lot less variety. He's not a guy that's got, you know, 45, 50 starts in his career to be able to, to diagnose there's going to be stuff that I'm pretty sure he's going to see that he hasn't seen before. And if they're able to get pressure, I don't think they'll be able to get the same level of pressure that Florida did because Florida's defensive line has some dudes on it. But if they're able to get anywhere close to that and limit the run, that's, that's where I think the, the game ultimately turns. It'll be interesting to see the matchups and how they shake out on Saturday. I'm going to take a short break. We're going to come back and talk about those matchups, get Jason and Greg's game plans for North Carolina. But we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll get it all done in a minute. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, 
so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, guys, let's get into this game plan portion. And I apologize to our listeners if it's a bit disjointed. We are recording in a hurricane. Everybody's safe and sound in their own homes. There are some nasty thunderstorms and even a tornado warning near where I am. So if I disappear... Don't think it's the Wizard of Oz. Somebody call somebody. Greg, looking at this matchup, the keys are going to be in the trenches like it always is in a football game. But I think here, what Jason was talking about, what we've talked about before in this podcast, the key is going to be keeping Howell clean and getting pressure on Williams. So if I'm looking at Carolina's defensive side of the ball, is this going to be a recurring theme all year? It's going to be the play of guys like Crawford and Strobridge that determine whether Carolina's wins or loses. Is that what this one's going to be, just like it was for South Carolina? It is, and I think if you look at – let's take Jake Bentley for a, for a moment. His, his eyes were deceived. That's kind of what Jay Bateman does. But when you actually look at the numbers, you look at the, the pro football focus numbers, it's not like he was under pressure a ton. You know, probably only about a third of the time was he actually under pressure. Uh, but because the way that North Carolina was sending people from different positions uh, and they, you know, they were shifting things around up front, it, it gave you the, uh, you know, the, the indication that there was pressure coming or that it was coming soon and that you had to make adjustments for it. Um, and then when you got some disguises on the back end, that's where you have some of those issues. So North Carolina had the success that it had, um, point being, not by just you know, sending a ton of people all the time. It wasn't a chaotic scene up front. You Watching it, it appeared to be that way for Jake Bentley and that South Carolina line. So I, I think that's, that's part of the interesting thing. Um, I do think when you look at what Miami did against Florida, I mean, <laughs> this is crazy. So Zion Nelson's true freshman, give him credit. Uh, he started a left tackle for Miami. Do you know what his pass blocking grade was, Tommy, by PFF? Without looking at it, I don't think you can go negative. Was it no. that bad? I'm guessing it zero, was somewhere in the teens. 0.0. 0. 0. Oh. So I could even. do that. I could do that, right? <laughs> can I be 0. 0.0? Wow. I mean, play for Florida. Yeah, State. although although your your zero point zero might look worse than his zero point zero might be faster, but right, it's not right. gonna be that much. You can't can't get much worse. Yeah. But Campbell at right tackle was thirty one point seven. Uh and then the other guys, you know, Donaldson at left guard was solid at eighty. But that was really about it. I mean, uh 
you know, those tackles really struggled against Florida. And like Jason said, you know, Florida's got just a ton of talent up front, but North Carolina has you know, some talent up front. And so I expect Jay Bateman to be relatively conservative, at least early, trying to see what he can do up front to get pressure without having to send a lot of people to make Miami you know, win this game by slowly working their way down the field. Because as, as Bateman has told us, and really as we saw last weekend, you know, he, he wants to avoid the big plays, but he's also he's not so worried about yardage. He wants turnovers, all right? And he wants he wants negative plays to make the, the offense play behind the chains, which puts them in a, uh, a defensive position and allows the defense to be a little bit more aggressive. I think he'll take that scenario every single possession. And so I do expect him to be you know, more conservative early, trying to see exactly how, how has Miami improved from week zero to week two. And I think that's a critical component. The other thing I want to say is one of the talking points we had this offseason, me probably more than anybody, was we know North Carolina likes what they have up front with Aaron Crawford, Tamon Fox, and Jason Strobridge. What about the guys behind them? Uh, and I think what we saw is that North Carolina only defended 61 plays against South Carolina, which means we're not talking about 80 plays, which has been the norm in recent years. Therefore, those guys don't have to play as many snaps. But also, when they did take breaks, when did those occur? A lot of them occurred early in the game, right? In the first two possessions, we saw Ray Vahasek and we saw Tamari Fox on the field at defensive line. And so what Bateman was doing was he was giving those starters breathers early while the game was still very close, while you know, it wasn't a pressure situation. But he was saving up those, those starters really until the second half. And that's one thing Crawford talked about this week is you know, he got some breaks early. And then when it got into your pressure time in the second half, you didn't see as many substitutions. So I thought that was a unique way. But if you can, if you can pair that substitution pattern with being able to limit Miami to you know, 60 to 70 snaps, then you're getting more productivity out of your starters, which obviously bodes well for UNC. Jason, Greg brought up a point there about Bateman being conservative. And that's what I was going to ask you is, how much do you think Bateman puts out there I don't want to say vanilla because people say that mess all the time, especially in, you know, meaningless non-conference walkover games. But how long can Bateman keep everything in the tool bag to make a reference to what we talked about last week? Um, you know, can he can he be successful doing that against a Miami team that struggled to block, um, that has a freshman quarterback? I think they can get away with that. Um Bateman's approach, how do you think he handles it going into this game? Because this game is huge for season implications, not just um, Mac's first home game and all that. I mean, Buck's already detailed why this game is giant for the Coastal Division. But So how long does Bateman keep it simple uh, and still effective, do you think? Well, th- that's one of the things that's a little – a little difficult to answer with how Bateman runs his defense. And that is that even when he's being aggressive, he's actually, he tends to, he tends to be fairly conservative. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things that 
you can bring pressure from different angles and disguise and do all sorts of things and make it look like you're being over aggressive or make it look like you're just you're you're really coming after the quarterback but you're still only bringing four or five and so you're still playing a bunch over the top and you know it's watching what they did at army last year i mean breaking down breaking down some of the i i, I had some of the all 22 film which we looked at over the summer they were bringing five as the as the norm they're not bringing all out stuff so i expect to see that and that means that he can play some three deep zone, you know, it's just fire zone at that point, but it's fire zone from five, six different angles, or you're just playing what we broke down this week where the, the, on the wolf folk interception, they brought four. The funny thing is on that video, I initially started talking about it as though it was a fire zone because they're bringing the backer. But then I realized as, as I was playing through and, and evaluating, it's like, Oh no, they dropped the end off too. So this actually looks and feels like a fire zone. But that end actually make dropping off actually makes that just a standard cover three, which is about as non-aggressive, quote unquote, as as you can get. That's you know standard vanilla, except you can do it in ways that aren't vanilla, and that's what I expect to see. I don't think he's going to change a whole lot against Miami. I think he's going to come in, and the other thing that I thought was was really interesting about. Uh, about the South Carolina game is Manny Diaz actually is one of those defensive coordinators who talks a lot about how the aim of a defensive coordinator is to make the offense have to beat you left-handed. You, you recognize what they like to do. And then you come in and you say, okay, the one thing that you, the the one or two things that you really like to do are the things we're not going to let you do. Well, Normally, that's a good plan, but you've got to be able to do that. What I saw out there on Saturday from North Carolina is South Carolina's best wide receiver. How many catches? One catch for seven yards. What they did is they came in and they said, South Carolina, you like these couple run concepts. We're going to call. We're going to slant into that. We're going to bring some run blitzes into that on the on the down and distances that you like to run those and then you like to go to this guy he's your playmaker so that's the guy we're going to make sure that we we take away in the way that we're going to call our pass coverages and where we're bringing pressure from and all that you're going to have to think about other spots but you ain't going to beat us there so to me what is obvious about about Miami after game one is or I guess do we call it game zero for them since it was uh, <laughs> since it was both a loss and on week zero? Uh, the obvious thing for me is Miami came out and they were much more traditional on offense, two back, quarterback under center type stuff. Te- you know what they used to call pro style, but mo- pro style has become much more college style in recent years. And what and the what what it they want to do is they're going to want to line up and run traditional zone week, uh, you know, lead ISO different things like that. And they're going to, they're going to start by trying to run the football to protect that young quarterback. And that's, that's going to be where they're going to hang their hat. I would bet a lot of money that Jay Bateman this week has emphasized. We're going to win first down in the running game. So you're going to see some run blitzes. You're going to see some, uh, s- some very clear matchups designed to get some guys into the gaps that, that 
that uh, Miami likes to run into as a way to try to set up the lever the leverage situations he wants. He's not gonna he's not gonna come with six or seven, but he will sell out in terms of how he's gonna do this up front to get the right matchups to stop what they want to do in the running game. Cause he's going to try to make them beat him left-handed, which means you're going to have to, you're going to have to throw the football son to beat us. Yeah. One, one thing to look out for. And I, I think this is an, an interesting uh, dynamic, although and in, in following up on what Jason said, Bateman's scheme will account for a lot of this, but as bad as Miami looked at Tom's uh, Jaron Williams, when he had time to throw, he was effective. Uh, he, he was 13 of 17 for 181 yards and a touchdown uh, without any pressure, according to, to Pro Football Focus. So that's that's a very high grade in how he played. Uh, now, how that pressure looks, if, if North Carolina can get pressure without having to send extra bodies, I think that'll be a, a key ingredient to North Carolina's success on Saturday. It's interesting. I'm going to steal, I believe, Hub City Hills. Uh, breakdown from the message board. South Carolina, 38 pass plays. Bateman rushed four, 29 of those. He brought five on eight of those. He only rushed three one time, never brought more than five. And Greg, you've talked about it. And we I think we mentioned it on the podcast, maybe in the preseason. Bateman sent six defenders at Army, according to him, sent six defenders at Army just once all last season. Um, so pretty incredible the way he sort of finagles the pass rush to make it seem like more. It's just fascinating to me to know that somebody can still switch things up. I mean, football has been played forever. I think this is, what, the 150th year, and a guy like Jay Bateman still finding ways to confuse opposition offenses with basically simple, why didn't I think of that first stuff, and it's so effective. And Tommy, one one interesting tidbit that came out this week from his players, and, and we'll the, the fun thing about new staffs is this stuff kind of leaks out from the players and assistants over time. So like in three years, we'll have a pretty good handle on Jay Bateman, I think. Uh, but apparently he told the players in training camp that he had a photographic memory. And that's one of the reasons that he has so much success with kind of seeing what offenses want to do and how it's an easy kind of adjustment for him, more so than other people. I don't know if he's just pulling their leg and just kind of you know, jerking their chain or whatever, but I thought that was an interesting uh, little tidbit one of the players shared. Yeah, well, it shows. And if he, it's a long season, so we'll see how it plays out over the course of the year, but it certainly worked in the, in the first game. Jason, last little bit before we flip over to the offensive side, I think a huge key as well for North Carolina against Miami is get these athletes on the ground. And they talked about that. They talked about the, I think Mac talked about after South Carolina and every coach did. It's tough to tackle in the first game of the season, given that they don't tackle a lot in the preseason and in camp. But I, I think tackling becomes even larger or plays an even larger role, especially against a team like Miami. So I don't think they'll do anything crazy. But if you miss a tackle, they're going to score. Your thoughts on that aspect of Bateman's defense and what he's worked at all preseason camp, all summer, all last spring? Well, I mean, you're you're speaking his language. I mean, he talks all about, well, you know, I may have a photographic memory. I may be able to call this and that up, and I can dial this up, and that feels great and looks great up until you have a guy miss a tackle. And then, you know, I may be the smartest guy in the room, but I look like the dumbest because what matters is what 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 
really matters isn't how much I know, but how much my players can do and how much the, how, how well they're able to get guys on the field or on the ground. And so you're, you know, that's, that's his view. And we saw that against South Carolina. I don't have the number in front of me, but I, I do remember looking at this that South Carolina had basically aside from the one missed tackle in the hole early on where you had the, uh, the, the long run South Carolina had no big plays against North Carolina, the defense, they gave up some, you know, 10 yard, 12 yard plays, but those didn't turn into 30, 40, 50 yard plays over and over and over again. They were able to get guys on the ground and, and, and live to see another play. And eventually you do that against, especially against a team with a freshman quarterback. And that guy may make a mistake. It's going to be hard to go down the field, eight, nine plays at a time. And a team like Miami that wants to, uh, that wants to get big plays, that that is that culturally that's what they do. They've got all their athletes. They get frustrated when you start getting them on the ground, and a lot of that is. It, it, so I we we talked on on the podcast, and I did a uh, some video stuff on Bateman's the difference uh, section of practice where he he has some really really well thought out ways of thinking of, of teaching tackling and getting guys to rep it every day without it basically grinding his guys up being low impact enough to get them to tackle well the other part of this though that stood out to me against South Carolina it was the angles it's not just about being able to tackle when you get there it's being in a it's it's having two or three guys to make sure that it, that that whatever player you're you're trying to tackle isn't one-on-one head up with a two-way go on the defender because you're not going to win that matchup much. But if you've got two guys coming from different angles and one is steering them to the other and they come under control, you can corral that guy because your angles are right. And again, that's part of the fundamentals of coaching defense. And some of that has to do with the kind of calls you have. So if you're playing a cover three, making sure that that guy's in the right spot relative to what, what you want elsewhere in the defense and again, I think that's where this defense, you're going to see a lot of payoff over the course of the year where they're going to give up. They're going to give up plays. Everybody does. And just in terms of the talent on the field in certain cases, it's, it's inevitable. But what we saw in week one was a team that was better executing the little things of the angles and just making sure that they didn't get into bad situations of one-on-ones with guys who could then be, make it into a 40 or 50-yard play. Amazing what the fundamentals will do and actually execute. And if I had a nickel for every time I heard over the last few years, uh, we were in position to make plays, we just couldn't get them made. Yeah, I think, Greg, you, you looked up the, uh, the the stat there for South Carolina, right? Yes, after after the – you mentioned that the 30-yard run Feaster had, there was another one early in the second quarter, and then over the last 40 minutes, South Carolina had one play – over 17 yards, and I think that was a 21-yard pass play. Winning that's getting football. it done. Yeah, that, that's winning defense. Greg, let's turn to the offensive side of the ball. A lot of questions to Phil Longo this week were, you know, taking the training wheels off Sam Powell. They talked about how they did it later in the game last weekend. Um, what exactly do you think, or how will that manifest itself against Miami on Saturday night? Well, I think what North Carolina was able to establish last week that was a little bit surprising to me um, is that we knew going in, everybody knew that North Carolina had a true freshman starting quarterback. 
we knew, everybody knew, that Mac Brown and Phil Longo have hyped the heck out of their three running backs. And so South Carolina was going to do everything they could to take away the run and make Sam Howell beat them. Yet what happened? North Carolina still had a ton of success running the ball, and I, I think that was really key for North Carolina keeping it close going into the you know, second half. And it was that running game that kept South Carolina honest, which allowed North Carolina to have some success with Hal. Uh, you know, a lot of his passes, and Jason can correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, but a lot of his passes were either to the outside or he, he they had a few slants. He wasn't throwing a lot of stuff over the middle. Uh, it was kind of protecting him a little bit, which I, which I think Sam excelled in. He, he did a very good job. I think the issue for North Carolina this week in terms of talking about, you know, Sam Howe has the training wheels off. Uh, he can go. Phil Longo said that this week. Is that Miami is is a better uh, team against the run than what South Carolina was. Miami may be the best team that North Carolina sees this season, even though I know Clemson is going to be great in that regard as well. But North Carolina had 156 yards rushing after contact against South Carolina, which is just tremendous considering the running backs, I think, rush for, for 230 yards among the three of them. So you basically two-thirds of their yardage came after contact. If they can do that again this week, it's going to be a lot easier for Sam Howell. Um, but Miami held Florida to, to 50 yards rushing. They were one of the top teams in the country last year in run defense. And I know a lot of people say, well, North Carolina ran the ball successfully against Miami before things got out of control down in uh, Miami Gardens last year. And that is true. And one of the reasons that occurred is because Chas Surratt was playing quarterback before he got hurt. And he was able to generate some, some run game out of that quarterback position, which opened things up for Michael Carter. So I, I really think the question is, how, how willing is Phil Longo to let Hal run the ball? Uh, because I think that's almost going to be a necessity against this Miami aggressive front. Um, if you let him utilize some of those run pass options and let him generate some yardage on the ground, maybe that's what you need to, to get some success running the ball. Therefore, that will help you in the passing game. Um, but this Miami front is tenacious. It is very talented. And so I think Longo has got some decisions to make about you know, how much is he willing to let Sam Howell uh, fling it down the field and how much he's going to rely on that run game once again which I assume that's going to be a key to every game moving forward. Uh, but how he handles that this week is going to be the determining factor for UNC's uh, success, I think. Jason, Greg made that. It was a great point. Surratt went nuts in that, the beginning of that Miami game last year. I just don't see Longo giving Howell that um, opportunity. <laughs> that That's fair. I don't see it either. And, and he, they've, it's been interesting to me because I, I keep seeing that taking the training wheels off commentary about the South Carolina game. And my response from the first time I heard it to now is they didn't, they didn't take the training wheels off. They can say they did all they want, but look at the concepts they asked him to, they asked him to throw. It's not taking the training wheels off to say, okay, son, throw a fade now. Every high school quarterback in the country throws the fade route. And it's a one it's a one receiver route. There's there's this the training wheels coming off means we're going to have you drop back and we're going to have you run the full offense where you're making reads and decisions to really 
to really have to uh, to to throw us down the field. And I didn't see that. There there were a couple plays in the second half. I can think of the the one third down where he he uh, threw the deep out to get him back uh, back in in good punt position, and then the one that was the near interception where he put the put the uh, the football through the the uh, transfer portal uh, and made sure it got to his receivers uh, receivers hands instead of the DBs. But those are really the couple plays where I felt like they actually asked him to really make a play. Otherwise it wasn't asking Howell to make a play. It was asking him to do what he does well, what they know he can do well without having to do too much thinking or putting him under pressure and then asking the receiver to go make a play. And to me, there's a difference there. And if there is a concern I have really going into this game, the big concern is that one of can Miami limit North Carolina's run game to the point where Howell's going to have to not just throw some fades and not just say throw a dig off of play action where the backers have had to come up to stop the run, but is actually going to have to to throw to win the game. Because we haven't really seen him have to run through your stand, like the standard offense, the full stuff beyond some downfield vertical shots to win the game. And, and if Miami can force him to do that, That'll be more interesting because, you know, we haven't really had to see that from him yet. And and that's a good thing. The longer they can go without without asking him to do that, the better. But I, I don't think the, the training wheels have really come off yet. And it remains to be seen whether Miami is going to be able to force those training wheels to come off. And I think some of that comes down to whether or not North Carolina is able to limit Miami's offense early enough that this game either stays real close or my or or Carolina continues to have a lead. If Carolina plays with a lead, I can tell you they're not going to they're 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 going to keep those training wheels, they're going to keep that seatbelt firmly on. Cuz there's no reason to to ask him to go out there and throw it around like Surratt last year and have the same result. They're going to the 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 first order of business for Longo in this game is to make sure that the tur- turnover chain stays in its stupid case. They want to make sure that they're able to run the football, that they're able to stay in advantageous leverage situations so that they don't end up letting Miami buy into their own momentum thing. And so that's that's the trick. That's what they're going to do. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, they, 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 uh, I don't. I don't remember whether it was you, Tommy, or whether uh, whether it was you, Greg. But they. I think it might have been you, Greg, where you mentioned that they that the defense only saw sixty five plays or so, a little over sixty plays, sixty two or whatever it was, yep. and that's a lot different from eighty plays. Well, that's exactly what we all expected when uh, when Longo was hired, right? I mean, that's that's what he's known for is keeping keeping the play count low and everything else. <laughs> no, no, that's historically. He's run a ton of plays, but what they're doing is they're happy to go ahead and run the football and let a little clock run. They'll still run high tempo, but by running it so much and playing a little bit more conservative in terms of what they're doing on that side, that means that there's fewer opportunities for 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 blow up on their end of things as well until the until they're really confident that their young quarterback and also the young quarterback behind him are able to do what they need to do in, in the clutch. And if they can get this game to the fourth round, to the fourth quarter, going back to the golf analogy, where they've got a chance to to shoot at some pins and win the game, I, I can tell you that coaching staff will take that in a heartbeat. That's the that's going to be the goal. It's going to be fun to watch. We'll revisit this segment next week and 
see how it worked out. Let, let's turn to the predictions. And we've done this in the preseason, but I mentioned it early in the podcast. How has everything changed your mind? So, Greg, I'll come to you. And, folks, you're still listening to the Inside Carolina podcast. It's been a long one. Appreciate you staying with us. Uh, it will be worth it in the end. Greg, keys to the game and your prediction, Carolina-Miami, 8 o'clock, Keenan Stadium, brand-new field turf. Uh, this home field advantage should be probably the best Carolina's had in a long, long time. How's it all shake out in the end? I think this is one of those rare games where it's where it's relatively simple in terms of the keys to the game. Uh, and we we've touched on it here in this podcast, but you've got two very young quarterbacks. How do the opposing defenses affect those guys? Um, and whoever affects them the most is going to win. And you know, in terms of in terms of changing expectations. You know, I told you earlier in the week, Tommy, huge win for North Carolina against South Carolina. But I think watching the game and then seeing fans' reaction after the game, it seemed like North Carolina played a lot better than they actually did. And that's that's to be fair, that they played well late, when, which is when it matters. There's a lot of corrections that had to be made, that have to be made, and I still think that's going to be a process through the year. If they can somehow win this game on Saturday, though, you go into a stretch where you have App State and Wake Forest, both are non-conference games, as weird as that sounds with Wake Forest. And then you go into a game against Clemson where everybody everybody knows you're going to lose, right? Not even expects, everybody knows you're going to lose, or so the thought is. So if you can somehow win this game, you've got pretty much three weeks to tweak and adjust and change without hurting your standing in the Coastal Division. So you can get into October rearing to go. Um, and so I don't you cannot overestimate the importance of this particular game. Um, having said that, I still think there are a lot of issues that kind of have to be ironed out, which we've talked about all offseason and even after that game Saturday. And so prediction wise, uh, I picked Miami to win this game before the season. I'm going to stick with that. I think this is a defensive struggle which we haven't really seen around these parts in a long time. So that I'm a defensive guy at heart. So that, that means a lot to me. I've got Miami winning this one 21-17, but certainly a game that North Carolina can win. Um, and I think it'll be a fun one to watch. Jason, you're up. Keys and outcome. It's hard to, hard to say much different in terms of keys. I mean, to me, Turnovers are going to be key with these two quarterbacks, but in order to maintain, in order to, to avoid those turnovers, the, the main thing is which team's going to be able to run the football. And you know, for guys like Greg, who are defensive guys, running the you know run the football and play defense, this this is this is going to be uh, this is a new era to enjoy enjoy a lot more. Uh, and I, I I like that kind of football too, so that, that I'm I'm, in, I'm enjoying this as well. But I think this is going to be a defensive struggle. It's going to be a team a game where both teams are hesitant to let their young quarterbacks lose the game or put them in situations to lose the game. And to me, the team that's able to run the football and get some big plays from its backs, is going to win the game. Uh, and both, both teams, you know, they've got Miami's got two backs that are really, really good. And then North Carolina's got three backs that are really, really good. So either one could have, a, a couple plays from from their backs that break this game open, but based on what I saw in the first couple weeks, 
and just the the level of confidence in Chapel Hill, this being a home game in Keenan, which I think it's going to be absolutely lit there. This is probably going to be the best atmosphere, at least since Butch has been in town uh, or, or since Butch was in town. So, I mean, I think this is this is a, a game where I think it's going to be close. I think it's going to be a defensive struggle, but I'm going to change my preseason pick and I'm going to pick my, I'm going to pick North Carolina to win this game. Uh, I'll say 23 to 20 this week. Similar type of game from last week, but but maybe uh, maybe not needing the 15 15 point comeback in the fourth quarter. But I think this is going to be one of those games. It could go either way. It's almost a coin flip, but I'm going to favor the, the the home team and the team that I think looked stronger on the offensive line. And I think as a result, probably winds up being able to run it just well enough to, to win this game. Ah, uh, yes. One convert. Greg's still holding out. <laughs> Jason, is. we have converted one. I'm going to stick with what I said in the preseason, and I'm going to say 31-28. And I'll give Carolina fans 15 seconds to pick, figure out why I'm picking 31-28. to 28. I think the battle over the belt or the chain, whichever one we see more is the team that wins. Uh, guys, it's been fun. It's been a long show. Stay safe in this uh, hurricane, tornado-infested hurricane weather. Hope to see you both on Saturday down in the Bowls lot. Hope to see everybody in the Bowls lot. Should be a fun time. Like Jason said, it's going to be lit in Chapel Hill, uh, so it'll be worth being down there before the game, hanging out with us. It'll be worth being in Kenyon Stadium 30 minutes early, as Mac Brown said. Either way, be there somehow. Jason, Greg, always fun. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by T-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.